Governments often impose regulations and policies designed to increase the quality and affordability of housing. Planning appears to have a proper role for things like sewers and electricity, but some aspects of cities change so quickly that planning proves to be too difficult. So at what point will too much planning lead to less affordable housing? Are there examples of successful neighborhoods that rely more on decentralized decision-making? And how does this give us an insight into how development happens in a larger sense? You're listening to the Success Project podcast series from the NYU Development Research Institute. The NYU Development Research Institute, DRI, was founded by William Easterly and Yao Nyarko. DRI, understanding the barriers to growth and development. I'm Will Comperl, and here to talk with me today is Alain Bertal of NYU's Marin Institute of Urban Management and the NYU Stern Urbanization Project. His recent paper is entitled Housing Affordability, Top-Down Design, and Spontaneous Order. Alain, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you. City governments often implement regulations regarding things like building density, floor area ratio, known as FAR, or green belts. What do these regulations control? Well, Let's start with the last one. The green belt is supposed to prevent the expansion of the city uh, into the countryside. And it's supposed to provide amenities for the resident and protect also the countryside. Uh, the effect of green belt is, of course, to, uh, to increase the price of housing you know, within the green belt because you, uh, you limit the supply and, uh, of land. And, and of course, uh, planners who establish the green belt I have no way of knowing uh, how many people will live in the city, uh, what will be their income uh, you know, in the future, and how much land they consume. So the, the, the setting of a green belt is always arbitrary, and normally it's a very negative aspect, wherever they are. Uh, FAR, the floor ratio, limits the amount of floor space you built on a piece of land. Originally, it came from you know, the the beginning of the 20th century where tall buildings were made possible by the elevators and uh, people were very concerned by shadows because uh, lighting was very uh, very expensive and so a tall building will, uh, uh, will cast shadow and, and therefore they were what economists call a negative externality and somebody creates a problem to their neighbors. Uh, this, this problem now is greatly exaggerated. Most of the people uh, inside a, a building, uh, spend their time outside in a way. Uh, light, you know, light for instance for children or things like that, uh, they get it outside their home. They don't get it in their home anymore. So it's not really such an issue. But the effect of uh, floor ratio when they are, uh, you know, let's say too restrictive, as it happened in some cities, uh, like Mumbai for instance is that it limits the amount of floor space that people can build, and therefore you end up with uh, uh, people consuming very little floor space. Now, for the rich people, uh, it's not that dramatic. You know, instead of uh, having uh, a 200 square meter, they have 150 per per houses. Uh, But uh, for the poor, who normally could afford only maybe 10 square meter, then they are squeezed into two or three square meter. That means they uh, they live in bunk bed, and sometimes even I have seen in some cities uh, people renting space uh, per the hour. It also seems regulating something like floor area ratio 
allows a planner to prepare for future population densities because of course they need to lay certain infrastructure like sewage or electricity based on this. So could you justify these imperfect measurements, uh, imperfect regulations of FAR as a way to plan for infrastructure? Absolutely, yes. Uh, but you see, the problem is when planners uh, project a population and a density and then they design an infrastructure like the sewer or water pipe based on their projection, that's completely legitimate to do that, to, to project. The problem is when they transform their projection into a regulation. Uh, it's much cheaper to to double a water line or a sewer line in a street than to expand the city because there is not enough space in the city because of the floor ratio. You know, there is a trade-off. So when you sort of regulate the amount of housing, it'll cause this tendency to sprawl, we could That's say. That's right, absolutely. And, and the sprawl yeah. requires more infrastructure. That's right, yeah. And yeah. that actually ends up being more expensive. Absolutely. And, you know, the problem is that the... The planners very often uh, identify this, uh, uh, you know, this constraint uh, on caused by infrastructure. You know, saying, "Well, we have already planned a, a water pipe of this dimension, therefore, there should not be a higher density than that." So they restrict the flow ratio, and at the same time, they create a, f a, a, a green belt which rest, restrict the expansion of the city. So the, the outcome is really extremely expensive housing. That's why you see uh, all over the world, not in every city, but in a lot of cities where, uh, you know, the price of housing going up uh, extraordinarily, now again, affecting the lowest income people much more than the rich, you know. The rich consume less than they would, but it's still, you know, it's still comfortable, let's say, where for the poor it is not. When we think of the price of housing, there are a lot of factors that go into it. It could be proximity to a big business district or to, to a nice setting. Um, and then, of course, obviously, space is, is a factor of that. So what, how do these, these floor space minimums then contribute to the flexibility of making that choice? I've got to think that a wealthier individual is going to have different priorities than a low-income individual that might not have the mobility to get to their job as easily as a rich person That's who right. could just prefer more space and is more willing to live far away. Yes. You know, mo mobility can be uh, interpreted two ways. One is the mobility, the everyday mobility. That means the ability from your house to go anywhere in the city. And then, again, here the rich have, have an advantage uh, because they have a choice between uh, using a car, a taxi, or, or, or transit. Uh, and the price of transit for the rich is irrelevant. You know, it's only the time which count. For the poor, it's both the time and the cost. And some means of transport are completely out of their reach, like very often the car uh, or, uh, and, uh, and certainly the taxi. So they are, in, a w and in some country, by the way, they cannot afford transit either. You know, there are some, uh, about 25% of the people who live in Mumbai cannot afford the very low subsidized uh, uh, cost of taking the suburban train. So therefore their mobility in terms of looking for a job is limited to about a radius of four or five kilometers, which means still walking about an hour, uh, two hours, you know, commuting a day. And that's very much limit there. Uh, the ability to get a job or a job paying better or things like that. That's why, for instance, in, in, in a 
again, a city like Mumbai, Ministry of India, a lot of poor people are really limited to to work uh, inside a house as domestic uh, helper, you know, because they they cannot reach the area where you know uh, of business or things like that more centrally located where they could get a job where they could evolve into something better you know you can imagine uh, somebody very poor uh, starting in a restaurant washing dishes but learning you know to do something better becoming a cook or even managing the restaurant now if you are a domestic servant there is no promotion like that and from this lack of affordable housing, people are still finding ways to live in these cities. So in your paper, you mentioned something uh, called informal, yeah. the informal sector, housing sector. So describe that a little bit and what, what should we think about it? Well, informal is a way for, uh, for the people who want to live in a city to make their own trade-off between distance, land consume, and floor space consume. Uh, and they are ready to, uh, let's say, to make sacrifice in certain area in order to obtain something uh, gainful in another area. For instance, in many slums, uh, for the slums which are relatively well located, you will find that uh, streets very often are no more than, say, three or four feet wide. Now, this is not because the people don't know how to design streets. It's because they make a trade-off that the floor space is more important than the street space uh, in their area. And so this will be illegal normally, it is illegal in general, uh, but that allow them to live close to, uh, uh, you know, to where they want to live. Uh, on the other hand, if they follow the regulation, they will, push back, they will be pushed back uh, in the faraway suburbs where they will have no way to get into jobs. So the informal housing sector then is a closer reflection of how these lower income people actually value that trade-off. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But of course because it is not a, a formal market that the government functions, there are some issues with uh, accountability, you know, for example, if you're in the formal housing sector and your landlord um, breaks the contract for whatever yeah. reason, then you can go to the authorities and they enforce the contract. But in the informal housing sector, you don't have those mechanisms. So wh that's what can right. we say about those effects? Well, that, that's a very negative aspect of the, the, the informal sector. In the countries who do not recognize them, there are some exceptions, uh, is that you are completely, uh, let's say, you are not protected by the law of the country anymore on anything, practically. Uh, if you live in the informal sector, including uh, not having school, not having water supply, and, uh, you know, uh, you have usually illegal uh, electricity connection and things like that. And, and also you are much more, you know, if it was legal to do what they did, there are certain things that, that they could do to protect themselves against fire or things like that. Especially with something like FAR, um, even if it was originally intended to allow more sunlight in an area, I think it's fair to say that now people want to keep regulations like that because, hey, I've got a great view out my window. I don't want a building going up next to me. That's so right. there's a lot of not in my backyard That's type right. mentality. It's even uh, happened, you know, people have the habit very often in, uh, when you have townhouses of parking their car in the street uh, for free. So they consider that if there is a building which is a little higher next to them, it's not so much a shadow. It's, uh, they will have to share the parking with more people. And 
although they don't own the parking, they consider it theirs, and therefore they will argue, and of course they will seldom uh, discuss the parking, they will talk about the environment. Uh, maintain the maintain historic the, feel of the neighborhood. Right, yeah, yeah, sure. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So with all these forces going to sort of making housing less affordable, governments still try to intervene to increase the, the affordability of housing. So what are the common policies implemented and what can we say about their outcomes? Well, uh, usually the outcome is not very good. <laughs> Let's say the, the, the first thing government does for say, all right, uh, those people cannot afford housing the way we want them, you know, what we consider as decent housing. Therefore, we're going to build it for them. So uh, politicians love that because they can make a declaration. They, they, they take credit for it. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, they, they break uh, the ground uh, on front of television. They, they cut a ribbon in front of the thing. The problem is that uh, they never build enough for the people who are, will be officially entitled to it, you know, typically uh, in a in a in a city in a market economy, you know, in a OECD country, you will have about uh, 30 30 percent of the population will be entitled normally to uh, public housing, you know. So the the government never build enough of those because it will cost too much. It's complicated, you know, to get building permit. So so you have a an illusion. Of that, and then when it is built, suddenly because you are selected only on the basis of being poor at the time, you you end up with a, with a ghetto, you know, living in a ghetto. And again, here this lack of mixity of income is not desirable. So the other solution is uh, uh, the most recent is uh, inclusionary zoning. That means asking a, a developer uh, to build for free for for the city. Uh, so-called affordable housing. Now, the problem with that is that first you have to def define what is affordable housing. You know, you have to say w whether it's an amount of floor space, uh, a cost, a rent, something like that. So this is a number which is going to be fixed, or you can f you can relate it to inflation or something. But it's it's a little arbitrary because you have a continuum of poverty. You know, you do not have one group which is poor and the other rich, you have a, right. a continuum. So, so you have this arbitrariness. Then, of course, there is no doubt that it increased the cost of housing for the people who do not benefit from it. So in a way, you increase the number of beneficiary by increasing the, and you have, I mean, again, politicians love it because uh, it doesn't appear in their budget. Because for if, if the city makes an agreement with a developer, we'll let you build here if 20% is uh, affordable right, yeah. housing, then because that is an arbitrary number, like you said, the other 80% are going to see their costs go up to still make it profitable for the developer That's to, right. to build. That's right, yeah. And so that is going to make, it, it's sort of like pushing a balloon down. You're just pushing the air to the side, even if it looks like you're solving That's right, the issue. yeah, yeah. And, and at the same time, uh, if you look at the numbers, you know, no, typically it's 20 or 25% of the unit built. Uh, the, let's say the developer who can afford to do that uh, would have to cater to the high end of the market. Let's say in New York it might be 20 or even 15% of the top of the market who could afford to provide this inclusion. So if you are talking about 20% or 15%, it's a very, very small group of people who are entitled, and that will be 
uh, you know, every year, let's say, uh, you, you, you depend, you know, to provide for a very large number of households, to provide housing, you, you are relying, in fact, on the growth of uh, the market for housing of a very small group of people. So you're very vulnerable, you know, to, so it's not a very, very efficient way of providing uh, uh, housing for, for the poor. And by the way, one irony is that very often the, uh, the government will re relax a floor ratio for the developer who agrees, you know, kind of as an incentive. Then you wonder, well, if you can relax the floor ratio without any negative externality, why don't you relax it in the entire city? Do it in the first place. You know, sure. and, and lower the price of housing for everybody. So if government intervention in the housing market, uh, like we've talked about, leads to these imperfect outcomes, is there any better alternative? So even if the regulations and affordability efforts are not perfect, is it still the best effort? No, I think that uh, uh, if, the, if the local government were sincere, in uh, trying to solve the, the housing problem of low-income people. They will increase the supply of housing by removing, you know, again, the regulation which are not really useful. You know, every time they give a bonus of floor ratio means that, in fact, the floor ratio will arbitrary. So that, that's the first thing. Uh, remove some regulation which are unreasonable, including, by the way, uh, the regulation which forbid, uh, you know, f one family house to be subdivided. The second would be to, in to improve transport. You know, one way to increase the supply of housing is to improve transport in many different parts of the city. And uh, when I say improving transport, it's not only to run a bus line, it's to, to decrease the time required to go from one part of the city to another so that poor people can select an area based on its low cost and still and still at the same time have access to a lot of jobs in the city. So I think the speed thing is very important. Are there examples of neighborhoods around the world that we can look to um, to see what happens when we relax these regulations and let the market take care of uh, th these choices rather than having it be more centralized? Uh, yes, actually, uh, one country which has tried that, you know, this in innovative approach for a long time has been Indonesia. Indonesia, you know, as the city of Indonesia expands, uh, they, they absorb villages. And the Indonesian have always put a little boundary around those villages and saying, within the village, you are allowed to have the regulation you want. Uh, it's a village chief who will decide, you know, there is a council of elders or something, but we will not impose our regulation to you. And we will connect you to the infrastructure of the city, but within the village you do what you want. So, uh, so in this case, uh, this in, in Indonesia is called compound, which is basically village in, in Indonesia. And now there are more and more enclaves, some are very large, where you have those former villages and you, you see there affordable housing. Uh, now some houses are very minimal, but all of them have access to clean water supply, the garbage is removed, there is a school, because those are not illegal, they are not informal. They are just within those area, you're in a way within those area, the government is saying you're allowed to consume whatever you want uh, in terms of floor space and, and land. We will provide you uh, with water supply, 
uh, storm drainage, sewer, and schools. Your paper also mentions the Vietnamese vertical urban villages. Do those function the same way as the Kampong? A little different, but it's a bit the same principle. That and it's the same also in China. Actually, uh, you know, also so the villages which are ver- which have been uh, uh, expen- you know, absorbing the city have a different status. You know, in in China and Vietnam, they have a different status because uh, you know, communist society divided society between workers in cities and and rural, you know, the peasant and the worker. So they have different right to the land, depending, uh, you know, it's strange to us, but that's the way it is. So that gives them, in a way, privilege to decide what to do with their land. And uh, in Vietnam, uh, compared to Indonesia, the the growth is mostly vertical. Uh, It's also uh, provide an income for the former farmers, you know, who have lost their land in a way. Uh, because they rent housing to migrants, and it allows migrants to live in, you know, in a rough area very desirable of the city, uh, and to have also full infrastructure. Now, sometimes uh, those migrants, you know, there is a, a building of four, three or four story high, and there is only one bathroom, one shower at the bottom. Now, this is very drastic, but it's better than to be in a slum in many other countries where you have no water or you have dirty water and no toilet at all. They're okay with the, with those conditions because it's the location that they're really... That's after. right, yeah, yeah, that's right. And as income improve, uh, you will see that, in, for instance, in the south of China, around Shenzhen, where, where the income are much higher because, you know, the workers are paid more, uh, you see immediately that those toilets at the bottom of the building disappear and suddenly you see toilets at every floor. In Shenzhen, their growth has been so quick recently. So as the city transformed from this tiny village into uh, a massive city, it seems like it would be difficult for planners to to see that coming and change regulations accordingly. Whereas maybe when they were a small village, regulations wouldn't have been as suffocating because there aren't that many people there. There's not as much demand for space. So... What can we say about the ability for planners to adapt to change that rapidly? I think they have to to introduce flexibility. You know, they have to acknowledge that uh, building a city is not like building a building. You cannot plan every detail in advance. You have to, and you have to also admit that in a prosperous city, you will have very rich people and very poor people. And those very poor people should be able to to come to the city. And the job of the city is not to ensure them, you know, that the, the kitchen will be, uh, you know, at a certain dimension and thing like that. The job of the city is to provide good school, good health, therefore clean water supply, remove the garbage, uh, drain the land, you know, so there's no flooding. And unfortunately, uh, many municipalities, instead of trying to concentrate on those basic issues where we will all agree it's important, uh, have incredible, you know, regulation of about, uh, you know, the, the size proportion of, of a room or something like that, which are completely irrelevant, very often not enforced, and when they are enforced, it's just a way of getting a bribe, you know, from a very poor person to a relatively poor person who is an inspector, you know, it's just a transfer, so it's not very efficient. So we've talked about before the effect that too much planning can have on the affordability of housing, and it seems like 
you're in favor of a certain level of uh, a role of government in making sure that cities oh. can ensure affordable housing. Oh, absolutely. But what happens, do we have any examples of what happens when government doesn't do enough? We have many examples of that. Uh, most of the cities of the third world, in a way, uh, have very deficient you know, water supply and transport uh, system. Uh, storm drainage also is very important, you know, in tropical countries. Uh, that's why you see, you know, again, uh, Mumbai being uh, uh, flooded periodically at the monsoon, where in fact Mumbai should not be flooded because it's relatively hilly and close to the sea, so it should be relatively easy to, to... It's just that the drain are not maintained or not designed correctly, you know, the storm drainage. So this is a failure of government on something which is relatively simple, you know, it's not because they do not, they have brilliant engineers, it's just that the city disperses its energy in a lot of little things, instead of concentrating on their main mission, which is to provide a primary infrastructure to a large group of people. How do you think your analysis on affordable housing that we've talked about today applies to development in the big picture? People escape poverty when they go to cities, and we have seen also that for many poor people, they have more chance to escape poverty in a large city than in a smaller city. For these uh, cities to be, let's say, to be able to, to provide this transition from poverty to, let's say, middle class, they have to function well and again to concentrate on their primary mission, which is to provide infrastructure, to provide the, 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 uh, you know, the public goods. Alain, thank you for coming on the program today and talking to us about affordable housing. Thank you. While cities must forecast future population densities in order to properly build supporting infrastructure, these predictions often result in regulations that adversely affect the availability of affordable housing. Neighborhoods in Indonesia, Vietnam, and Shenzhen show how letting people decide their own trade-off between things like floor space and density can allow for the presence of more housing that is affordable and suited closer to the desires of residents. This episode of the Success Project podcast series was recorded in New York, New York, and featured Alain Bertaud of NYU's Marin Institute of Urban Management. Visit nyudri.org to hear other episodes in our series, read Alain's paper, and learn more about the Success Project. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation.